0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays and songs like I have. Plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. Please don't forget to subscribe to moms. Don't have time to read books, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. And if you can, please leave a five-star rating or a comment. Today's episode has been sponsored by Babo Botanicals. Babo Botanicals offers your family non-toxic and pure hair, skin, and sun solutions created with natural or organic solutions. Their tagline is Family Comes First Naturally. As an aside, I use Babo for literally all my kids' shampoos, body washes, sun lotions, and even for me too, so definitely check them out at babobotanicals.com, b a b o botanicals.com. I'm here today with Amy Malloy, author of several books, including However Long the Night and Jansen's Gift, plus books she wrote with Elizabeth Edwards and John Carey and Teresa Hines Carey. She recently released the novel The Perfect Mother, so nice of you to name that after me, by the way, <laughs> which was an instant New York Times bestseller. The movie rights have already been sold to make it into a major motion picture starring Carrie Washington, and it just came out on May 1st. Right. right? Uh, she's also written articles and essays for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Salon.com. Amy now lives in Brooklyn with her husband and two children, ages three and five. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of
0: course. So for the busy moms out there who might have missed all the amazing press your book has been getting, heralding it as the can't-miss summer read, can you explain what The Perfect Mother is about?
1: Yes. It's about um, a group of women called the May Mothers who meet after having babies at the in, in May at the same time. Um, and it's a mommy group, and they get together before their kids are born, and then after the kids are born, they meet twice a week in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. And when the babies are six weeks old, they decide that they need a night away for the first time from their kids. And so um, they pick a bar to go out, and they one of the women in the group, Winnie, she's a single mom, she's reluctant to go. And so they sort of put a lot of pressure on her, and they hire a babysitter for her, and they convince her to come out. And so while they're out having drinks, um, Winnie's babysitter falls asleep on the couch and she wakes up to find that Winnie's six-week-old son Midas is missing from his crib. And so the book takes place over the next 13 days and it follows three members of the May Mothers who become increasingly convinced that the police are screwing up the investigation and increasingly determined to do everything that they can to find Midas before it's too late.
0: And how did you come up with the idea for this?
1: (coughs) Well, it's so morbid, right? But, um... (laughs) I had my first um my first baby in 2012 and you know I live in Brooklyn and my husband's family and my family we don't nobody lives near us and so um even though I had friends who had babies like I did I felt pretty alone and isolated like I really experienced that and so I joined a mommy group through Park Slow Parents, which everybody does in Brooklyn. When you have a kid, you sort of have to. I think it's like a law there. <laughs> and so we were the September babies. And you know, it was my mommy group. But at first I was like, I'm way too cool to, have to do this. I'm a little bit, I was you know, 39 at the time, I was older. And, um, and so, and then almost immediately it was like these women became this in- integral part of my life. And I didn't even really go to the meetings. Like much like the May Mothers, most of the the, um, like the group existed online and with a listserv and so you know we would somebody would write with a question and it could be three in the morning and it was like you know here's this concern I'm having or here's something with my baby or my marriage or my body or whatever all these issues are we were dealing with and within minutes there would be like a dozen thoughtful responses you know and I had done a lot of travel in rural Africa before Mm -hmm. when I was pregnant actually and so I sort of was really, you know, blown away by these, like, the tribe of women that existed in these communities where somebody would have a baby, but, like, every woman there would, would treat this child as their own. And so I of, like, I started to play with this idea. You know, I'd never written a novel before. I really wanted to. I kind of, I'd been ghostwriting, nonfiction. I wanted to get out of that. And so I, you know, I, it came to me, like, this is, here's something to explore. Like, what it's like, the craziness of having a baby You know, this like, especially in the city where you don't have families around and like this tribe of women that kind of gets created often in urban areas. Um, You know, and then it became, and then I read Gone Girl. Mm -hmm. And I loved that book so much. It really like brought me back to the pleasure of reading. And I sort of started to play with like this morbid idea. What would happen in this mommy group if one of our kids went missing? And I just had this vision of all these women relative strangers, you know, smearing war paint on our face <laughs> and like taking up our torches and like going on the streets of Brooklyn and not resting until like this baby was found. And so I just let this idea sort of, I played with it for a while and um, started to really study thrillers and like the pacing and, and how it worked. And then after my second was born, um, less than two years later, I finally said like, okay, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I hired a babysitter and said to my family, like, everybody's going to adjust. I'm going to I'm going to not take any work. I'm not going to take any paid work for a year, and I'm going to try and write this book. Um, so, yeah, that's how it came about.
0: That's amazing. So, where did you have a certain place you went to every day? Or to work? Or did you have a schedule? How did you do it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, um, you know, because I really said to my husband, like, I'm not going to – I was at the point in my gross writing career where – I was, I mean, I had like made it. I Mm -hmm. was like getting these really great jobs and, you know, and that was the time where I was like, okay, it's time to quit. You know, and my husband's like, no, not really. And I was like, no, really, I need to do this. And so, you know, I just hired a babysitter. My kids were one and three at the time. And I had this whole ruse. We have this small two bedroom apartment in Brooklyn and the babysitter would come and I would say, okay, I'm going to the office. And I would just slam the door. Really hard and then sneak into my bedroom because <laughs> I didn't actually have an office and I can't really work in coffee shops and so I would I wrote it in my bed basically and then I would have to text my babysitter and be like I have to go to the bathroom <laughs> so she would so like funny. bring them into the other room so they couldn't see me and then yeah and I mean I kept because I had this year deadline you know I said I started on January 5th and I was like I have one year to do this and so it meant that I just wrote all the time like I wrote when the kids went to bed and I woke up at five and then I wrote every weekend like my husband like he just took the kids away and you know I did a couple Airbnb cottage rentals and stuff Um, yeah and eventually my daughter she figured it out like and so she started to slip these notes under my door and they just said like I miss you mommy oh oh, no With like a big frowny face, you know, and I was like, and so finally after I finished the book and I started my second, I'm like, okay, I think it's time to like rent a studio. <laughs> I will not be guilted into coming out and playing with you. Aww.
0: That's amazing, the image <laughs> that you got it all done like that. That's amazing. Yeah. Did you know, um, you know, some novelists say, oh, you know, the characters just came to me and it just all unfolded in front of me and I didn't even write it myself. It just like flew out. Did you have it all mapped out ahead of time? You no. studied. No, it just came out. Yeah,
1: and I mean, I used to hear novelists say that, and I would think yeah. that it was like really. Insane. And I didn't mean to.
0: I didn't mean to dismiss it or anything.
1: No, but it's 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 crazy. Like it, it's it's you know, I was saying to somebody the other day, like I consider myself. I grew up pretty religious, and then I lost that, and then like I've sort of been trying to like you know like I feel especially with having kids, like I feel more spiritual. This book has made me feel very spiritual. The process of writing it because it really. It felt divine at times like just this you know there's this big twist at the end um which I didn't even know existed which I will tell you after we turn the which one yeah but uh, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> you know it's sort of it, it was 80 percent of the way through where like this twist came to me that I think really made the book and I don't know what would have happened if I didn't if that hadn't come to me you know and yeah. like as there were just so many times where I think like pieces fell into place where I was like, oh my gosh, this is happening here, and like because of what happened in chapter two, and I didn't know this was coming, but somehow some part of my brain like was organizing it. Huh. Um, but you know, and I'm now I'm doing my second novel, and I'm doing it again. I'm just kind of writing blindly, and it's really hard. <laughs> I mean, I'm like I don't know how I did it the yes. first time, and now I'm back being like I'm not sure I how to do it this time either.
0: <laughs> I loved in this book how you shifted from the point of view. Mm-hmm. Is that is that was that part of when you were. Analyzing all the structure, because um, I feel like the structure of the book and how all of a sudden you're in all these different women's heads and in their kitchens and everything. Yeah. It was like so powerful to do it that way. Yeah.
1: So the book it's three. It's Francie, Nell, and Colette, and I, you know, they take turns kind of speaking. And um, originally, you know, when I when I decided to write this book, I I'm more of a literary reader, mm-hmm. and so I really was struggling with this idea of writing a thriller, like that. I if I could do it, and like if I could. You know, because I felt that I, there, a lot of what I wanted to say felt like important and like feminist. You know, like yep. what it is, what's hap- like what it's like to be a woman in yep. today's culture, and I didn't know if I could do that in a thriller. And so my, what I originally said I was going to do is that the narrator was going to be we, first person plural. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was like, we woke up and we went to the bar and mm-hmm. like we took care of our kids. And it was like this one collective voice of motherhood. And there's been a few books that have done this really well. Mostly Joshua Ferris wrote, Then We Came to the End This mm-hmm. Way. And it's about you know a group of people working in an office. And, um, <clears throat> and you get to know the characters individually, but the narrators as we... And, it, I mean, like, the fact that I thought for my first novel that I could try it, it was so stupid. Like, I joined a writing group, and they were like, huh. You know, the first time, and they were like, yeah, I don't think so. And then I was like, no, no, it's going to work out. And then the next week, they were like, no, it's even worse right now. Like, And so, eventually, it, it was four months of me, like, really fighting to try and approach it that with that point of view. And then when I gave it up, and then I, you know, decided to switch where each woman, like, you know, had their turn, it was much easier. So I think in many ways it was just like this relief to me, like, okay, you know, I feel like I'm cheating because I had this really hard goal and then I gave it up and like I'm doing something that feels easier. So the book just kind of like, it was six, you know, six months later, I think that I finished it once I like gave in to that point of view.
0: I just interviewed Cachelyn Macy, who mm-hmm. replaces, I see her back. And she was saying that um, she really, she had, she was telling it from one character's point of view. Who was sort of damaged in a way, and then she realized it was much more powerful not to be inside that character, but yeah. to like it's not as interesting to be inside a flawed character, but to see it from the outside. That's interesting. And so she, once she figured that out, like the rest of the book yeah. came flying out. She was like so stuck there for a while. Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, I think really it's
1: you know it I it's I've learned a lot by writing this book and by writing a novel, and you know, and point of view is so important, and you know, your whole. I think that's the first key, and I had this this writing group of incredibly smart women. Thank God, because they were able to kind of like work with me about like how important it is to get the right point of view, mm-hmm. and once you do that, how easy like when the writing is easy, like you're you know you're doing it right, sort of. Well, it's never easy, but easier.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and one of the major coups for the book that has gotten all this press is that you got Billy Idol to let you use yeah. the lyrics to Rebel Yell yeah. and get the rights to that. So how did that work? Yeah. So.
1: Um, so this the the New York Times just wrote about this this what happened with this but you know because I think I had this short deadline, I was obsessed with like the story. I was oh, and my husband was like, "Ugh, you're not even here." Like we would be having dinner and I'm just like staring into space, and he's like, "What are you working at? Like, are you spending time with Nell right now?" And I was like, "Yeah, kind of." And so we were out one night and I heard Rebel Yell. You know, and the lyrics are like, "In the midnight hours, she wants more, more, more." You know, and I said to my husband, I was like, "This is a song about new motherhood." <laughs> And he's like, this is absolutely not a song about new motherhood. Like, you're crazy. Everything you're seeing is I was like, no, listen. And like, the lyric was, I thought it was, I'll walk the world with you, babe. And I was like, no, this is it. You're walking like with your child. And then I went home and I Googled the lyrics and it's actually I'll walk the ward. Mm. And I was like, no, it is. He's writing about having a baby and so you know in the first scene of the book when the women go out and um they're at this bar while Midas is being taken from his crib the rebel yell comes on and so the women all sort of they're drunk by this point and like Nell who's kind of the like troublemaker a little bit like you know she's dancing to it and she's she like declares that this is the anthem of motherhood and so it was I listened to that song a lot while I was writing it and and of course, you know, I grew up in the in the eighties, so I was like, I love him. So, um, and so when I sold the book, the editor said, like, in order to get the rights to use these lyrics, it's a lot of money, and you have to pay for it. So you have to get rid of them, and I couldn't do it. And so I so I Googled his manager, Billy Idol's manager, and I found you know his website, and I just emailed him, and I was like, Hey, I'm writing this novel, and it's about to be published, and can I just use the lyrics to the song? And he wrote back, He's like, I don't know, let me ask Billy. And I was like, really? <laughs> and it was funny. And I remember my iPhone. I had an iPhone, and it broke. And so I like one. I went to the iPhone store in Brooklyn, and like you know, I have to get a new phone. And when I turned the phone on back at the iPhone store, and my like, tr- and I download my email. It's he had written. The manager had written back, and he was like, Billy Idol says yes. You just have to thank him in the book. And I was like dancing around this iPhone store, like telling all these people. I was like, Billy Idol said yes. Billy Idol said yes, and like you know, I was like, of course I'll thank him. And so what I ended up doing is, is instead of doing, I didn't want to do any acknowledgements because I, I was I like, I'm like, if you have the chance to thank Billy Idol, like that can be the only person you thank. So like, you know, I was like, I'll tell my mother and my husband, like, thank you privately. But like, I thank Billy Idol. in the, in the, <laughs> in I, saw, the
0: acknowledgements. I, I always love reading the acknowledgements. I feel like you always get like this inside glimpse yeah. a little bit into people. And I got to yours and it was like, I'm um- I like to thank Billy Idol. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> on to the next.
1: <laughs> well, acknowledgments are so weird because it never used to be that novels, novelists did acknowledgments. Right. Like, it was just nonfiction people, yeah, you know, yeah, books, yeah. which makes sense because for nonfiction, like, you really need a lot of people. But now it's, like, these funny acknowledgments in novels and... I don't know. I think I wouldn't do it even if it wasn't Billy. Idol. I think I'm a little bit too like I did this once, one of my first nonfiction books where I like I thanked my boyfriend at the time and like
0: oh no, and then you we broke up. <laughs>
1: and I think I'm a little bit like I don't want to do that again. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs>
0: Um So, I think Nell might be my favorite character. I really mm. loved her sarcasm in the book. One scene that I thought was super funny was um, so Scarlett says, "No offense. I know a lot of people love New York City, but I can't imagine raising a kid in the city. Since the baby, all I see is how filthy it is here. I want him to know clean air and trees." To which no response. Not me. I want to raise my baby in school. Squ- I want my baby raised in squalor, <laughs> and I think this really speaks so much to this ever-present debate of New York City moms like us and so many other people. It's it's so hard to raise kids here, and logically, like this isn't the best place, and yet we all sort of stay. Yeah. Um, what do you What do you think this is all about?
1: Oh my gosh, we should like have my husband here. We could have like a therapy session right now because we are we're in the midst of this debate, you know, and it, it's. I I would, I think I'm ready to leave and, um, you know, my kids are, are at that age now where they they just want to be exploring. My little one now rides a bike to school and like, you know, I'm always like, watch out for the dog poop. Like, watch yeah. out for the garbage. <laughs> and like, I'm like, I want to leave and my husband can't do it. He's, he's a child therapist. He has a, you know, good private practice yeah. in Brooklyn and he's, he's like, he's obsessed with music and he rides his bike everywhere and so he's worried that if he leaves the city then it'll be, you know, that it'll be hard so. I don't know it's it's this constant this is the problem with moving to New York I think is that you really where do you go when it's time to leave Mm -hmm. and you know it's such a special place and it's such a hard place that um you know I don't know and yeah I think once you have kids it just becomes it becomes both harder and like also more magical because your kids are just experiencing the city you know and so I don't know I think I guess the answer is to like have a country place or something and keep your place in the city so that's our current fight Um,
0: um, i also really appreciated the scene at the what became known as the jolly mama from colette's point of view and he wrote most nights at this time she'd be sitting with her laptop in bed staring at a blank page feeling exhausted and inept how did i used to write she wonders so I'm sure so many aspiring writers out there feel the same way. You know, I know I have like no time to write, not that I'm a writer like you, but just even like the, the, the one page every so often that I do. Um, was this, you know, do you feel like this is your experience at all? Or it sounds like you just had this huge motor under you to finish the book and you were never like too tired to be working on it.
1: Uh, um, I mean, I a little bit, but before I was writing... I wrote a book, However Long the Night, which is a biography of this this woman, Molly Melching, who lives in Senegal in West Africa. And she has started this human rights camp, like, education, which has just led to this human rights movement among women there. And it's it's amazing. And um, I, with one of my first one, I found out I was pregnant on January 1st, and then I left for Senegal on January 2nd. Wow. And, yeah, and so I did a lot of traveling while I was pregnant, and then the book was due, you know, so I, I, I can't remember what it was, but... I took two weeks off before the, the, my due date in order to like rest and prepare. Cause I was in the midst of writing this like really intense book. And then my kid was like two weeks late. So I ended up like taking a month off beforehand, which meant that like day three of her life, I had to go back to work. And so, you know, I had a babysitter come at the time and I was working in the bedroom and the babysitter was like in the living room. And I just would literally like spent I would just go through pictures of like looking at my baby while she's like out in the living room. Which Nell does in the book. Like she has to go back to work quickly and then she spends her whole time like at work looking at pictures of her kid. And um I mean I don't know how I I think like Colette's experience is more of that experience for me. Okay. You know, where I was like I had a newborn and I was having to write and um and it wasn't even just, like, finding the time and, you know, like, being awake. It was more, like, your brain really yeah, doesn't yes. work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, and she's, a ghostwriter, and I was a ghostwriter. And so a lot of, I think, like, my developing her as a character is, you know, is, like, sort of, yeah, was my way of sort of exploring that, like, all the way that your creative life changes after you have kids, which creative people talk about, but it was it was shocking to me sort of how much, like, you know, everything in my life shifted. And it was, you know, and what I ended up doing after I had my kids was I started to write about having kids. And, you know, it's yep. sort of a joke <laughs> in the book where, like, Colette is saying to her boyfriend, like, I don't know what to write about. And he's like, well, do what every woman does, like, write about having a baby. And yeah. so, you know, and I wrote all these articles about breastfeeding and, like, formula and, like, sleep training. And I think that that was my way of, like, leading up to, like, trying a novel about motherhood. Um, once my brain, you know, once my, my kid was, like, one and a half. And so by that time... It's better. It's still hard, but it's not, you know, I'd actually forgotten what it was like for the newborn phase. And like in the book, the kids are six weeks old. And so I started to go to coffee shops where new moms groups were meeting and like kind of stalking them a little bit and like sitting really close and like listening to, cause I was like, what are, what do we, what do they talk about? Um, because it was, you know, it still had seemed by the time I think you reach a year old, like you're like, you forget, you forget, you forget, because <laughs> you have to forget or you never have another child.
0: They say, though, from an evolutionary perspective, this is quite helpful, right? That yeah. Your brain becomes so consumed with your baby and keeping everybody alive, you know? Totally. But it just doesn't, so much of having babies just does not fit with the modern world, I feel like. Yeah. just like, No. from the schedule of the feeding on, like, yes. nothing fits, like, it just doesn't fit. Yeah. So, anyway, um, uh, you talked about the moment when um, the narrator was talking about it, when she realized uh, that she was going to change when she had a baby, even though she didn't want to. And yeah. the first thing she noticed was that all of a sudden she started waiting for the streetlights yeah. to turn green before just you know crossing, and it's such a great New York moment. Like, Do you feel like changing behavior in this way, do you feel like that was sort of a sellout for the narrator or something more positive?
1: <laughs> um,
0: well... I
1: mean, it's funny. So, my three-year-old just started to ride a bike, like, without training wheels. And so, both of my That's kids. That's super impressive. It's, well, my husband is crazy because he rides his bike everywhere. So, he's like, okay, we're going to learn how to ride a bike today. And they come home and, like, they both know how to ride bikes.
0: And I'm, I'm like. So, like, hire your husband to come teach <laughs> I know. You should do that. <laughs> I
1: like should. I mean, she's almost four. So, okay. I shouldn't say she's three. She'll yeah. be four in, like, six weeks. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, they stop at the streetlight and, like the only reason I let them ride their bike to school is because they know to stop at the streetlight. But we had this fight. This was, like, our tension sort of after having a kid is that um, I was that person, you know? And, like, I am somebody who, like, I, you know, I... But when I was single, I like went to Bali, Indonesia for like three months to write, and like, you know, just didn't know where I was going. And my husband and I, like we went to Nicaragua on our like honeymoon and like Honduras on our baby moon. Like, you know, we would show up and like not even have a hotel reservation. And so I was not somebody who like did a lot of, I wasn't very fearful. And then I became, I did become really fearful and like really anxious. And like, if my husband like had the stroller and like was standing on the sidewalk, but this, like the stroller was in the street a little bit, like I would just be like, oh. And he used to, there's like we have a driveway and like he would put the baby seat like on the hood of a car and like unlock our gate. And I was like, he's gonna fall off. And um, to me, that was the most surprising part. I think of having a kid is like, I did not have postpartum depression, but I think I like, I think I had pretty serious anxiety. And, um, you know, and it was only after I had my second that I didn't feel fearful that I was able to look back and be like, wow, that was intense. Like, that was really, I was very nervous about keeping this kid alive. And I was surprised by that. So, um, you know, and like, I do see these moms hers she's like, whatever, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. And I probably wish I could be that person. And I was much more like that with my second. Um, but it just wasn't you know I was like I'm just not I guess I'm not wired this way and I was shocked by it and my husband was shocked by it you know I think it was it did cause like a lot of tension because I Mm. think he was like who are you like how are you this like super anxious person like she's gonna be fine if like I'm not standing like right on the corner and I'm like no she like you'll never get it you'll never get it and like they really won't ever get it you know it's it's true like they really won't ever get it so um yeah
0: I know, I finally got to the point where I'm like I just I can't go to the playground anymore because I'm so anxious that they're gonna fall that I'm gonna make them yeah crazy. like my kids aren't afraid like yeah. they're happy to go exploring but if I'm there I'm like wait watch out what yeah. and I like put my hand underneath I'm like this is so bad for them yeah like, I have to just take myself away or like put them on the swings where I feel really good yeah um because I feel like there is that sense of like oh my gosh like did I keep them all alive today? Like, I know. God, God forbid. I mean, it's terrible. but It's like so much responsibility and pressure. It's like you have to adapt to that in some way. Yeah.
1: And I remember when my when my, when my daughter, my oldest, she was probably one and a half. She fell and she cut her eye really bad. Like she had oh. 10 stitches right oh above her eyebrow. And it was like horrible. And like, but I think in some ways it like broke the ice a little mm-hmm. bit. I remember we like we bought a new car and it was like our first time spending money on something like that. And I was like, I kind of wanted to just key it myself because I was like, we need to get a scratch on it so that I can stop worrying about it and just be like, okay, it's just a car with a scratch on it. And, like, I think, you know, as kids grow up and they get hurt and, like, bad things, you know, like, a little bit hurt, like, I think it just becomes like, okay, we're all going to survive this. You know, she's going to cry through the night and she's going to wake up and be fine and we're all going to survive this. Yeah.
0: Well, thanks. That made me feel a lot better. one moment towards the end of the book I feel like is a great commentary on the role of the dad in the emotional of people of having a newborn. Colette is laying in bed uh, debating telling her husband how she's really feeling inside. And he wrote, but she's too afraid, afraid that if she begins, she'll start to cry and never stop, that she'll be swallowed by her sadness, her fear, how overwhelmed she is, how certain she is that everything she has is slipping away. And I felt like this was such a relatable moment. Like, do you confide in the husband? Can he understand sort of what we were just talking about? Yeah. Like, do you feel like you went through something like this with your own husband? Or you could just imagine other people going through it? Or
1: Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it was, you know, just as we were just saying, like, my husband's a therapist. So he's he's probably more open to, like, messiness, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and in some ways not, too. Because after a long day, like, he doesn't want to hear it. But, yeah, you know, but I I do think for me it was it was this, how much do you, like, reveal about the anxiety that you're feeling you know and again because I wasn't I wasn't like an anxious person and um I think it was like giving voice to it like it was almost made me feel weaker to you know Mm -hmm. and so which I think is where a lot of women get in trouble because they're afraid to sort of you know they're failing and like you know like Francie in the book like she's very anxious like she was my I got to put all my anxiety like that I felt with her um you know, and she couldn't – the way sort of, like, you know, she she tells her husband, and he's like, oh, my God, are you crying again? You know, and her mother-in-law is like, you've wanted this baby so bad. Like, why are you so upset? You know, and, like – and then she sort of has to, like, bottle it up. And then Colette is doing the same thing where she's not – she's not able to really be open with her boyfriend until later. You know, and he's super understanding when she eventually, like, opens up how she's feeling about it. But, yeah. I mean, this is – this is why – we need this tribe of women, I think. And this is actually why I think this, this My Own Mommy group was so amazing because the honesty that people shared, like the... You know, and it was literally, like, I would know about, like, a woman's inverted nipples (laughs) and, like, you know, what was happening, like, with her sex life. But if she walked by me on the street, I probably, I wouldn't recognize her because, like, I didn't, like, I never met her. But it was, like, this place to come and just be, like, here we are in all of our, like, neediness and messiness. And if I can't tell my husband about it, at least I have a place to, like, put it so that it doesn't become worse, you know. And then eventually, like, you feel better, hopefully, where you get help.
0: Um, your book has been compared to Big Little Lies meets Before the Fall meets The Girl on the Train <laughs> meets everything. It's like, do you think, uh, and it, it became you know, an instant New York Times bestseller at number five. Um, well, first I wanted to know what it was like when that happened, when you found out, did you get a phone call? Like you said on Instagram, <laughs> I may have had a little bit too much wine last night after the wonderful team at Harvard Books called to tell me The Perfect Mother is debuting at number five, truly a dream come true. So I want to hear about that. And I also want to hear about why you think this is hitting such a chord with people today.
1: ok. So the story of The Times is um, the way that it works is that the, on Wednesday at five pm, the New York Times book review, they email out to like the industry people, like here's the upcoming, here's the upcoming list for the week, which is actually like a week ahead of time. And so, I knew that I knew this. And so I'm very much some writers are, you know, like, they don't want to know about the sales, or they don't want to know the business side of things like they just want to write. And I'm like the opposite. And I think because I've been in the industry for so long, and I've written a bunch of books, like, I'm very much like my agent is like, No, I get it. You want all the information like, okay, okay, okay. So I knew that this was coming at five. But there it was like, I did not at all think that I was going to hit the list. Um, But you know, the publisher had done a really great job of promoting the book before it came out and um and so at Wednesday my husband does school pickup at uh, on Wednesdays and so at 3:30 he like leaves to go get the kids and he was like I said do you want me to call you at 5 and just tell you and he was like if you call me you made the list and if you didn't call me then you didn't I imagine and I was like okay that's fine and so <laughs> so it was like 10 to 5 and It's a quiet house and I go and just pour myself a glass of wine and I'm just sitting on the couch and I was just like, this isn't going to happen, but wouldn't that be nice? Oh, and here's the weird part, actually, was that I didn't, I actually didn't, I didn't care about the list because it was like, there's no way that I'm going to debut on the New York Times bestseller list. And then on Sunday, I go to sleep and I have this very vivid dream that my agent and I go out for drinks at like six o'clock at this waterfront bar because we know that the Times list is coming And that I get a phone call from this friend of mine that I haven't talked to in 10 years. And he says, oh, I just, they emailed me a copy of the list early. And you're number five. I know. No way. Yeah. And I was just like, and I woke up. And it was one of those moments where I was like, oh, no, that was a dream. And I actually, like, was very upset. And then I said to, like, I called my agent. I was like, I had this dream. And I'm like, I didn't even care about this. And now I had this dream. And now I'm like, now I really want it really badly. So... So I have my glass of wine at 10 to 5 and at 5.09 the phone rings and it's a Manhattan number, but it's not my agent. I was like, I don't know who this is. And so I answer the phone and I'm on speaker and there's a lot of rustling and like people talking. And I was literally like, who is it? And it's my editor. And she says, oh, it's your team at Harper. And I was like, okay. And I was like, what happened? And then I hear literally like a champagne cork popping. And I was like, did I hit the list? And she said, Yeah, you're you're number five. And I was yeah, like,
0: it on me. and I literally I
1: was like, that was my dream. And my agent was like, had been patched in. And she was like, Amy had this dream. And like everybody's, they were so sweet. Like they were as happy about it as I was. And so they're like, okay, great. And they were like, You're number five. And then you're on the combined list. And I was like, wait, what? And like they were like, you know, you're on the list, and like and so I could barely hear them. And, like, they were like, okay, we have to go, we have to go. And, like, they hang up. And I just, like, sat there. And then I was like, hmm, what do I do with my husband? Like, I don't really want to tell him. I don't want to call him. And so I don't do anything. I just, like, wait. And, like, he takes he takes the kids to the playground. And I'm like, okay, how long do I have to wait? So at 5.45, I, like, finally text him. And I was like, "What? when are you coming home? And he's like, we're leaving the playground, but we have to go to the grocery store to get dinner. And I was like, oh, shit. And so, you know, like I'm waiting and waiting and he said, what happened? And I just don't even respond to him, (laughs) which I was like, not even trying to be a jerk, but I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. And so when they, they finally come home at like, it'd been an hour and I have a movie set up for the kids and like. 2,000 snacks. Like, anything that in the house was, like, on the table. And they were like, this is amazing. And I was like, do you want to watch Lion King? You know, and Mark's like, my husband is like, "It's what are you doing? We have to eat dinner. And I was just like, "Let's." Go. we have this little garden. I was like, let's go outside. And so I, like, I had printed out. They had sent me the, the PDF of the list. So I, like, had printed it out. And so we sit down. And I said to him when he walks in, he looks at me, and I was like, oh, I haven't heard anything yet. And he was like, oh. And so, like, we go outside, and he's, like, starting the grill to make hamburgers, and it's taking forever. And then he finally sits down, and I, like, had put a beer in the freezer for him, and I open it, and I hand him the list. And he just looked at it, and he was just like, well, how about that? (laughs) He's like, that was your dream. And I was like, I know. And then, like, we drank, like, all the wine in the house, basically. It took me, like, three days to recover from that, but (laughs) I've learned my lesson, so... Yeah, it was really, like, it was, it was, I think it was, like, one of, it was one of, like, the best moments that I've had in this whole, like, you know, I was like, I love getting married, I love giving birth, but I was like, this is kind of all good, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) this is just amazing.
0: That's (laughs) awesome. And do you have a sense of, I mean, I have a sense because I read it and it's amazing and, you know, page turning and, you know, you relate on an emotional level, but it's also like you're on the edge of your seat and everything. But do you think there's some part of, is it because we all need this tribe so badly and your book kind of gives us a glimpse of that, that you think that readers are resonating with this so immediately? Or what do you think?
1: I think so. I mean, it's hard to like say what's good about the book, but. I, I know, like, when I sold it, one of the things that was important to me, or when I finished it, I should say not when I sold it, but was that I did want to write, like, a book that was pleasurable to read, that is really, like, this page-turning sort of mm-hmm. beach read, but I also wanted it to be, you know, I was I wrote it during the, um, the presidential campaign, and so when everything was kind of coming to light, and, you know, when Hillary Clinton was running and the stuff that she was dealing with as, like, the female candidate, and so... It was It was equally important to me to, like, write something that said something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I hope that that's why. I mean, the reviews, I'm trying to stay away from reading reviews. I've learned my lesson. But um, a lot of people, I think, who like the book are saying, like, that it's not just this page-turning thing. But it also, like, really, I think women are feeling understood mm-hmm. in what it means to, like, give birth now and to be a woman. And, you know, there's a lot of these sub-themes in the book where most of the women have been, like, have had some sort of, like, harassment or abuse at the Mm -hmm. hands of, like, powerful men, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and they're, like, dealing with discrimination in other ways. And so I think that hopefully that that's the reason I think that, you know, it's also resonating.
0: And tell me a little more. I know we started talking about this before, but uh, about this becoming a movie and how long this process has taken. And yeah, the whole so thing. we
1: sold the movie rights right after we sold the publishing rights to Carrie Washington and Amy Pascal, and TriStar is gonna do a film. And so um, it takes a long time. And so right now it's in the hands of an incredibly skilled screenwriter who's doing the adaptation. And I'm supposed to get a draft, I think, in a couple of weeks to read like what she's done with it. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know. It's, you know, now it's just, like, sort of, just... It, that, to me, seems like I'm having to put it sort of to the side because I don't get it. I don't really understand the film industry. And, um, you know, I don't know. I'm just... It'll be amazing if this happens, and then I can go and, like, see this on film. Although I have to say, there's the audio version of The Perfect Mother is is amazing. The woman who did it is... Um, it's, she, it's... She, like, she, she becomes all these different voices... And she really captures it. But it's very hard for me to listen to because I don't know why. Like, Mm -hmm. my mom was over and she was listening to it. And I I actually, like, was crying. Because I was like, it's so, like, of course, I mean, it's a book. Like, you could go to the airport now and it's in the bookstore. So, of course, it's a book. But, like, hearing somebody else sort of, like, take on the story, it was really emotional in a a great way. Um, Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine what it would be like to sort of see... You know these characters, like played by actresses, like on the on the screen, like like
0: FedEx, you have a big box of tissues. That'll be
1: my next. Like (laughs) I'm drinking my wine with my husband. I'll be like, I'm gonna save it till then.
0: (laughs) And you mentioned you're writing another novel. What's that? Can you tell us what it's about? Or
1: yeah, it's about um, what is it about? It's about it sort of turns the focus from marriage to I mean motherhood to marriage, and it's about a newlywed couple who leave the city and they move upstate to the country. And they buy um, a Victorian mansion that was the site of the first domestic violence shelter hmm. and had been closed for five years because it was, a resident had been murdered there. And so they take on this house, um, and he, the husband is a therapist, and he opens up an office on the ground floor where he sees patients, and she's, the wife is upstairs sort of managing this major renovation of the house. And she starts to hear voices. Um, and so, it's a hard book to talk about because there's a there's a very early twist. So I'm being told that I have to stop giving it away because I've been talking about it. <laughs> but it's sort of they, it, you know, it sort of then follows. It's another sort of quick couple week story of like what starts to happen in this house. And it's not really a haunted house story, but there's like there's some some aspects to it. And then this these things that happen that put a lot of pressure on this on this young marriage and like if it can survive.
0: That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> And just last question, do you have any advice to aspiring writers out there?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, keep writing. You know, like every day keep writing and, and you know, whenever you can. I, I, I have a friend who just published a really beautiful book called The Ones We Choose, Julie Clark, and, and um, she wrote this book. She is a single mom of, th- of two boys. She is a fifth grade teacher she was diagnosed with breast cancer. And even through all that, like she wakes up at four o'clock in the morning and like writes for three hours and then like goes to work and like <laughs> would go to treatment and like come home. And so I'm like, okay, if she can do this, like we can do this. And I, you know, and I think the best thing that I did is that I found this writing group that I joined that was very supportive and were willing to tell me when things were terrible and, you know, and we're like willing to kind of shepherd, like walk with me through the process and I think like, you think that you have to suffer alone as a writer and you don't. You know, I think the best thing that you could do is to surround yourself with a very trusted group of other writers who will who will like be there to cheerlead you and also tell you when things are like absolutely terrible.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming Oh, it's on. my pleasure. I just don't have time to read books. It was a really great conversation and I can't wait to see what happens with your next book and, the movie and everything. So. Thank you. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, sponsored by Babo Botanicals. Don't forget to subscribe and please leave a five star rating.